more than a single story unscripted. Hello, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this bonus episode of More Than a Single Story Unscripted. You all are in for a treat. This is a raw conversation that my friend, Dr. David Childs, and I had as we examined being Black in America. It's a raw conversation. It's an authentic conversation. And it's a conversation rooted in historical and educational context. You are going to get a glimpse into how he and I feel as Black men and women um, living in America, working in America, being educated in America, being Black in America. I promise that you are going to be educated you're going to be challenged. You're going to be stretched. But I think that it is a conversation that we need to begin having on a regular basis. So I'm going to get off the mic. I'm going to let you listen to the recording. If you have any questions, if you have um, any suggestions, if you would like to be a guest, please email hello at tracynicole.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. And so I didn't introduce myself, but I am Tracy Stokes, and I'm a diversity, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion professional at a local college here. And I also own a business called the Tracy Nicole Brand. And what we do is we assist uh, clients with telling their story, uh, realizing their potential and really tapping in on their purpose. And so I do believe that telling your story really is what will kind of bring us all together in whatever subject that we're talking about. And so we'll talk about that a little later and kind of tie that in. But I really want to get into the meat of the conversation. Is that okay with you, Dr. Childs? Yeah, perfect, perfect. Let's do it. Okay, so you know, 2020 has been a difficult year so far. We've had a lot of things going on, uh, beginning with the pandemic. You know, that was unexpected. I don't think any of us knew how that was going to kind of, um, kind of hit us hard. You know, with having to stay home and social distancing. But then we had the killing, the murder of George Floyd, and that set off. You know. I don't, for lack of a better term, some civil and racial um, unrest. Right. And so going through those two things, how, just checking in with you, how are you doing and how are you coping with that? Because I think as social justice educators and diversity and inclusion educators, sometimes we're so, you know, we're in the work and we're doing the work and sometimes we don't have folks to kind of check in with us. So how is, how are you and your family kind of doing and coping with all of this? Yeah. And I, thank you. Thank you for uh, that question. Um, Tracy and I have been, Tracy, you know, you and I have been doing this work for a long time. Uh, we, we talked together, we worked together uh, at the same university not too long ago. We did these kinds of things publicly. I don't think we ever knew we would be on Facebook doing this. So uh, COVID, <laughs> God, we're both Christians. And so God brings, God works things out. And he does, does what he does in his own time, in his own season. Mm -hmm. so we are. Um, uh, with the Facebook platform uh, talking about social justice issues, but we've been doing this, this work for a long time. Uh, we were doing it when it was unpopular, mm -hmm. um, still unpopular with a certain segment of society, but it's more kind of vogue right now. Uh, but we've been doing the heavy lifting for a long time. Um, and so in terms of how I feel, it's very exhausting. Uh, those that know me and uh, one of my, uh, my professors from my university is on call, Dr. McMahon, one of the persons that really influenced my life um, as an intellectual. One of my favorite, favorite all-time classes, probably the favorite class that I had with her was exceptionalities at Miami University. And we were talking about these things a long time ago when I was a young whippersnapper. Uh, back back in the, the covered wagon days, I was uh, in, in her class and uh, idealistic. Um, I, I, I haven't been always idealistic these days, to answer your question. I haven't always been. I'm usually the optimist. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of praying. I've been doing a lot of neology. Mm. Asking God uh, what direction to go in. And where do we go from here? Um, mm -hmm. how, how I've been doing is, to, to some extent, I've been uh, really encouraged by my white 
brethren and sistering. Um, but at the same time, I've been discouraged by the response of so-called Christians um, because uh, some folks have been really attacking me in terms of talking about social justice and trying to take things out of uh, politics. Um, the world is political, um, but politicking is different. That, that's uh, posturing for political advantage. And that's righteous. That's, that's doing things to get the political uh, advantage is it, it, not the right thing to do. But at the same time, education is political. Uh, conversations about housing is political. Conversations about where we're going to eat, that's all political. But that's different from being a politician yeah. and, and, and playing the game so that we can be elected. And uh, so I, I've been critiquing these kinds of things and how the system uh, disadvantages uh, folks that are black and brown. And I've been getting a lot of just outright racist com comments. In fact, I've been posting my sermons and posting lectures. And for the first time in a while, I've been having uh, uh, blatant racist comments. Um, I always have experienced microaggressions. When you talk about critical race theory, critical race theory is a philosophy. Those that don't know, I'm gonna do a little teaching here. Um, get some books on critical race theory. You wanna get uh, Delgado is the author, D-E-L, G-A-D-O or Derek Bell, the, the founder of critical race theory, um, and just begin to look, look up uh, different authors. There's some female authors out there that are doing critical race theory. Uh, and one of the things they talk about is microaggressions. Microaggressions are the small prejudices that we experience every day. A lot of times when people talk about racism, they think about the big things that I've even experienced sometimes, like um, finding uh, racial slurs scribbled in the bathroom. I've seen that at my university or even worse lynchings or cross burnings or like when I was in the Waffle House one time, we saw some Klansmen in there eating. But there's some smaller microaggressions like, you know, assuming that African-Americans don't know what they're talking about, assuming that they're ghetto, that's, that's microaggressions. Uh, but lately I've been experiencing more overt racism uh, mm -hmm. when I post things. And, just recently, a couple of days ago, I posted a lecture on black history without even uh, reading it or, or looking at the material. A uh, white supremacist guy posted on my, 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 uh, my page, we're going to do much worse than that to black people if they don't back off. And the whole uh, lecture was about <laughs> lynchings and putting the George Floyd within historical context of violence. And uh, there's a couple of comments of that nature. And I said, oh my goodness, this is much worse than I even thought. So how am I doing you know, some, some days I'm, I'm optimistic, mm -hmm. other days I'm really, it's, it can be discouraging. So I've been doing a lot, a lot of praying. So I, I agree with you. I've been doing a lot of praying. I've also been doing a lot of reading. Um, yes. Just so that I can, you know, continue to educate myself because, you know, to those who are watching on Facebook and to those who are on the webinar with us, you know, uh, cultural competency and, you know, learning to be an anti-racist and really using your sphere of influence to make a difference, that is an ongoing thing. It is not something that you, it's not a one and done. It's not something that you can do sometimes. You know, you can be anti-racist and then turn around the next day and be a racist because you're not continuing the work that you're doing. And so, you know, it has been hard. You know, a lot of people are turning to me for answers. Now, in my, in my nine to five job, I understand. But I think, you know, research and learning for yourself, you know, and not overburdening, you know, your not to overburden your black brothers and sisters with questions that you can research and asking questions is okay. But, you know, expecting me to have every single answer and to say my answer and to and to give it to you the way that you want to, it is exhausting and it's hurtful. Right. You know, I'm scared to have my sons go out of the house because I'm not sure how people will react to them. I know right. that they are gentle young men and they are very respectful, but someone else might not see them that same way. And that scares me. It terrifies me, you know, mm -hmm. um, to think about that. My cousins, all of my male family members, and it's simply because they are Black men. And a lot of times Black men are seen as the enemy. They're seen as the criminal. They're seen as the predator. And that's not always true. You know, just like some Black folks can be predators, you know, so can white folks. And I think that, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around someone can, you know, take my son because of how he looks 
and put him in a category. And so uh, that's very scary for me. So I've been, yes. you know, reading and researching and having conversations with you and other peers so that I can get this off of my chest, so that I can get it out because it, it's a form of self-care. We have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of each other. Yes, absolutely. So Dr. Childs, a lot of people have called what's going on, you know, with the protest in almost every, um, in almost every uh, state, um, in many cities across the world, across the nation, they're calling this um, the new civil rights movement. So do you agree with that? Um, do you disagree with that? How would you categorize, you know, the movement that's going on right now? Well, uh, I'm going to answer this as a historian. I was I was trained as a historian. I'm the historian pastor, so I'm going to look at it from a historical perspective. Um, I see the civil rights movement as having started during during times of slavery and going through the 20th century. So uh, just to back up, you have uh, slavery. Uh, people like to use the 1619 date. Mm -hmm. uh, indentured servants, a handful of indentured servants, uh, black indentured servants along with white indentured servants uh, came to Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. Um, and they were slaves uh, in the broad sense, but they were certainly weren't slaves in the sense of how they would become known uh, by the, the seven, by the 1700s, where it was racialized uh, chateau slavery. But even before 1600s, uh, the first slaves and the, the first black folks that came to America were came to uh, what was Spanish Florida, uh, came to North America, which was Sp Spanish Florida in the 1500s. And so uh, I, I would start um, the civil rights movement somewhere around probably the, the, the early 1700s, going through the Civil War, 1865, uh, when uh, African American, the 13th Amendment gave African Americans uh, freedom, and then the 14th Amendment gave them citizenship, and then the 15th Amendment gave African-Americans, uh, uh, the bl black men to vote. Women didn't vote till the 1920s. So going through that, then Reconstruction, which is uh, after 1865, and then going to the Nadir period uh, from the end of Reconstruction, 1870 to the 20th century, where they took away the rights that blacks gained during Reconstruction, and then going into the 20th century and fighting Jim Crow. Jim Crow was really the, the, the crux and the catalyst for the civil rights movement. Jim Crow came out of the, 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 the sort of uh, grandfather, grandmother of Jim Crow was, was slave codes, which was designed to, to restrict the movement of Blacks. Then Black codes, uh, which even in the Northern states, we have Black codes. In the non-slave states, we have Black codes designed to uh, restrict the movements of African-Americans. Then Black codes evolved into Jim Crow. And so a lot of the civil rights efforts were, uh, were to, uh, to do away with Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. and so I see the, the civil rights as being continuous, even after the 60s, even after the death of Dr. King. Some scholars like to look at the death of Dr. King in 1968 as when the civil rights uh, ended. But I see the civil rights as continuous. I just think we're in another wave of it. The, the seeds have already been planted. It's going to look different. Um, the civil rights movement was primarily housed in the black church. Um, now you're seeing a more of a interfaith um outside of the church movement it's you see a lot more uh, young folks but although young folks were part of the civil rights movement as well um but you you see uh young people young women in particular mm -hmm. one of the things i think is even more important is the interracial aspects of the civil rights movement today now it was always interracial you always had white allies um but there there have been surprising people um that have been uh speaking out, um, even from the, the middle class, even from the upper class, even from the white elite, which I think is really, really important um, to not have some other things to say about that, about white, white allies uh, that I, I don't know if I want to go into just yet. But it's, in terms of today, um, it's a reaching back to the past. I still think there's a prophetic voice from the black church that, that has something to say. I come from a unapologetically Christian perspective. There's something God is saying in this hour, in this season to us. But at the same time, the church does have to listen to what people are saying. Mm -hmm. it, it's, 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 it's interracial, it's uh, 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 multi-generational, and, and a lot of these folks, are they have a, even more of an education than they had in the past. People understand the political system, they understand systemic racism, 
Because I, I just, so to answer your question, it has evolved. It has evolved. Now we have to think about where we want to go after the protest. What is our role? What's the role of protest? What are we trying to do? So there's some things we have to think about too as it relates to protest and moving forward. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I'll stop there for now. And so I'm glad you you talked about you know protests. It's it's an evolving movement, and so that was a that was a great way to put it. So you talked about protests. You know we have peaceful peaceful protest. You know we talked about this a, a couple of days ago, and again today we have peaceful peaceful protests, we have riots, and then we have looters. And so we don't, we have people who are at different stages in, you know, cultural competency and social justice, you know, education. And so I think I want to, you know, stop right there and kind of talk about that. Because as mm -hmm. I read on my timeline, I have all sorts of folks on my timeline, you know, I go to a predominantly white church, you know, they're awesome, by the way. So when we have a conversation, I do want to talk about, you know, my experience there because it has been really touching and it has been a different experience for me. But I really want to talk about those three things because I think when people talk about the things that are happening in, you know, cities across, you know, the United States and across the country, they kind of lump these three things in together. And I think it's very uh, pertinent for us to, important for us to kind of stop, break, and, and and kind of talk about that for a moment. So yes. you can you just give us a little bit of information or just give us a little bit of background? So this is what we do, y'all. You know, yeah. I ask him a question <laughs> and we go back and forth. And so, yeah. you know, I, I definitely use his knowledge so that I can learn. You know, I'm about to start my PhD, so he's going to be on my speed dial. So yeah. Dr. Charles, I'll kind of give it to you. Go ahead. So, so yeah. Um... What we want to hone in on is this notion of a peaceful protest. Uh, the peaceful protest, through, so think about this if you're, if you're writing things down. The peaceful protest, the, um, the riot, and the looting. Is that what you're referring to? You want to go yeah. there? Okay, yeah. yeah. Peaceful protest, the riot, what is looting. And the media has kind of brought them together like this. And there is this, they have muddied the water in terms of what is a peaceful protest, what is a, what is rioting, and what is looting. And um, from the extreme right, that's intentional. There mm -hmm. is a, an intentional effort, an intentional, into, intelligent, masterminded effort to conflate peaceful protest, which is our First Amendment right, mm -hmm. with looting, and to, to automatically brand the protesters as looting. Why? Because in a totalitarian state, uh, you want to justify military action. You want to justify uh, the use of force. Mm -hmm. A person that has the ideology of using force, the, the, the law and order president, um, they, they want to get things done. And George W. Bush was the same way, not as extreme, but he has the same mindset. Uh, we're going to use force. If you don't listen to us, we're going to make you listen. That's a certain ideology. So in order to use force and still have the public support you, you have to justify the use of that force. Mm. How do I justify the use of force? You can you, you make a person not human. And so that's what Hitler did. Uh, Hitler, there's a, there's, there's a, if you study Nazi, everybody always uses the Nazis as the bad guy. Once you compare somebody to a Nazi, it's like they're a villain. But if you, if you look at what Hitler did, he systematically uh, created this image of the Jews as monsters. That's, that's the textbook methodology for the tyrant, for the dictator, it, to take an enemy, a political enemy, a group of people, and dehumanize them. They did the same thing with our ancestors as Af African Americans. They dehumanize them. Now, all of a sudden, if they're not human, I can whip them. I can, well, that, that slave master can sexually assault the, the women. They can steal their children or can sell their children because they're not human. So the yeah. same thing is going on with protesting. If I can make the protesters look like criminals, if I can take Antifa and some of the extremist groups and lump everybody as an extremist, if I can make people think, if I can, like, like on uh, Fox News one time they equated, uh, I think it was Tommy Lauren, equated the Black Lives Matter with the KKK. If I can successfully take people and make them think Black Lives Matter 
is on the same level as the KKK, then I'm going to think terrorists. I'm going to think, okay, we need to call in the military. We need to militarize the police. We need to have assault rifles. We need to have rubber bullets. We need to have tear gas. All the things they begin to have in the, in the last few weeks during the protest. If the public thinks that Black Lives Matter folks are enemies and criminals, then they're going to give permission to the authorities to be able to use violence. And so what we have to do is differentiate between a peaceful protest, mm. a riot, and looters. So I'm say I'm going to say a little bit about that. Then I want to hear hear from my colleague here. Uh, we have a our first amendment right is is, is to protest, mm -hmm. a right to to speak out and speak our voice as long as it's peaceful. Um, and so if, uh, all day long we can protest. But what happens if if, if there's an election year? and the protesters are telling the truth and, and exposing individuals, they don't want those voices to be heard. Textbook in a totalitarian government is uh, to suppress the press, to take away freedom of the press, to censor. If you look at what China's doing, if you look at what Russia was doing, they want to censor people because I can speak out and call out the totalitarian leaders and say, hey, this person is corrupt. They're not doing what they say that they, they're doing. So they want to be, uh, demonize the protesters and go to that next category and say they're rioting. Mm -hmm. okay. But rioting does come out of a place of anger and rage, frustration. There's a whole conversation about that. But then looters, and Tracy, you were talking about this earlier, looting is a selfish act. Yeah. I'm going for myself. Mm -hmm. And there's been a whole history. You can go back to even um, to, uh, Katrina. Um, Hurricane Katrina, where they called the black folks looters already. You know, they, they were talk, they were uh, dismissing. They said, these people don't need to be rescued because they're looters. They mm -hmm. showed all this footage of black folks with TVs and stuff like that. That's a caricature. They're trying to make a blanket statement about protesters today and say their voice is not valid. They're all looters. They're thugs. When in fact, this particular time, a lot of the looters and the opportunists were, in fact, white folks. But that in American psyche, the black man is the criminal. The person of color is the criminal. Yeah. The, the terrorist is not the KKK who have systematically uh, killed black and brown bodies. They have a whole history of it. Um, from they, the One statistic says from the late 1800s to the, the 1920s, uh, thousands of uh, black bodies were lynched. Uh, 4,000 of our black bodies were lynched. And I link that to modern day uh, police shooting. Those are the terrorists. Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter, have not killed anybody. The Panthers have not killed anybody. But in people's mind, these extremist groups are terrorists. And so uh, there's a lot of history, historical context. And I think we just need to, uh, I'm going to start pulling out my books, but not yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we were having this conversation. And so, I, and like I said, I'm educating myself a little bit more so that I'm able to, number one, kind of calm my spirit because when you learn, you know, I think I got out of the habit of really learning and I, you know, I took, I took for granted some of the peace that I had, right? And so my mm. peace has been disturbed, you know, my foundation is just a little bit disturbed. And so when folks talk about rioting and they're talking about looters, you know, I'm like, that's not the same thing. You know, I was telling Dr. Childs that if you are a looter, you are opportunistic. You are taking advantage of the situation. So that's not what people are doing. You know, I know that everybody is overusing and using Dr. King quotes. He was a wonderful man, but he wasn't the only one. And we'll talk about that too. Um, right. Maybe not in this session, but a, a subsequent one. Um, so did you get that I was telling them that we're going to do this again? So, um, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, he said that riots are the voice of the unheard. So, yeah. you know, when I, when I was kind of describing Dr. Childs, I was kind of describing, you know, why people would do this. And I, and I likened it to if you have children and if your children, just think about your children being bullied at school. You know, they come home and say, mom, dad, I've been bullied. You know, they're bothering me. And you say, you know what? It's okay. They'll leave you alone. Go back to school. So day after day, mm -hmm. day after day, your child is being bullied. But then one day, 
they just decided, you know what, I'm not going to take it anymore. And I said, would you want your, would you be mad at your child for taking up for themselves, for standing up for who they are, for standing up for their rights, you know? And so when I put it like that, people, I think some of my associates and some of my friends they kind of get it because you wouldn't want your child to be hurting, you know, and right now I think that black folks and people of color, you know, are hurting, you know, I think we're, we're wanting to be heard. I know that I, Tracy, Trace Speaks, I love, you know, I like to be valued. I like to be heard. You know, I don't, I don't want to feel as though my words don't matter. I don't want to feel as though, you know, what I'm feeling doesn't matter. I don't want to feel as though, well, Tracy, you live in a nice neighborhood, but that doesn't mean they want us here. And it doesn't right. mean that they want my boys there when they go to the bus stop every day. It doesn't mean that they go to one of the best schools in Northern Kentucky that my, they want my boys to be there. You know, I've had, you know, my kids have gone to Northern Kentucky schools since they were, my youngest was in the third grade. And so I can remember he was very accelerated. And I can remember teachers telling me, well, you're going to have to tell your son to not read so fast because the other kids can't keep up with him. Wow. And that floored me because would you tell another kid, a white part, you know, a white person's, you know, kid, they need to slow down because the other kids can't catch them. You know what I mean? Right. So I've had problems like that, you know, since we've been here in Northern Kentucky and I'm an advocate, you know, the school system that they're in, they know me, you know, because I make them know that my kids, they have an advocate. They have somebody at home who will speak up for them. I may not know everything, but what I do know, you're going to know that, you know, and I think a lot of people a lot of black people, especially living in predominantly white areas or sending their kids to predominantly white institutions in college and in, you know, uh, post-secondary schools, it, it's just difficult. And I don't think that people really realize how their words, how their actions, how their attitudes, you know, how their energy can affect a person of color. So we talked about, um, this is an article and I'm going to post, you know, especially if you register, I'll post these articles in the books that we recommend. But there was an article on NPR talking about being black in America. And I just kind of found this as I was researching. And this is what it said, just the paragraph. Black people say they are frustrated, fearful, fatigued, I'm not going to lie. I am angry. Ellington, a 41-year-old marketing professional who is Black and has a 10-year-old daughter. As a Black man in America, it is already hard enough that we have to fight within ourselves to become a better person. So this is an inward fight. This is not something, you know, that somebody else is doing to him. He said he has this fight with himself. But there are countless forces working outside of ourselves that are also working against us and have been for generations. So what we're going to move into now, Dr. Childs, is talking mm -hmm. about the system, right? Right. Systemically, you know, for a long time, Black folks and folks of color, underrepresented folks, it was, the system was not set up to see us succeed. Right. And although there has been, you know, some great success, there is still so much more we have to do because statistics, you know, and I don't have them right in front of me, but, you know, a black child and a white child could come from the same area, mm -hmm. same socioeconomic background and have a difference in how they're educated and how they're treated. So Dr. Childs, talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on the system and i know that's very broad but right well, now you know because of time let's have a broad conversation and then mm -hmm. we'll kind of see you know we'll kind of see what happens so what do you think about that well i was i was interested in the idea of anti-racist education as it relates to the system ah, okay um there's a book uh called is everyone really equal uh, some of you may have heard of the book uh, is everyone really equal um it's by sensoy and D'Angelo. Those are the two authors' last names, Senso and D'Angelo. And they have an awesome definition of anti-racism because that's, that's the discourse, the philosophical tradition, the, 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 the theorizing we're doing is centered around anti-racist education. Mm -hmm. 
Anti-Racist Education recognizes, quote, racism as embedded in all aspects of society and the socialization process. So racism is embedded in how we are socialized. Socialized meaning, socialization meaning uh, how we learn what it means to be an adult in a, in a, in a person, how we, how we learn the educational process, even how we do religion, there is racism in, can be embedded in that, uh, in the sense that uh, whiteness and the way uh, whiteness is played out is best. And everything that's black or of color, our music, our cuisine, mm -hmm. our patterns, our, our, our dating rituals, the way we laugh, uh, the way we talk, the way we exist, our ontology is uh, deviant and substandard as it relates to Western culture. Mm -hmm. T-Racist starts with that premise, um, the way we teach as professors. Our research is thought to be inferior. Our writing is thought to be inferior and not as valid. Our philosophical traditions like W.E.B. Du Bois' work or James Cone's work is thought of as a subcategory, Black literature, and the, the white scholars are thought of as the standard. And mm -hmm. so uh, anti-racist names that unapologetically. Um, no one is born into and raised in Western culture. No one that is born into Western culture can escape being socialized to participate in racist relations. Anti-racist education seeks to interrupt these interrate, mm. to interrupt these relations by educating people like we're doing now to identify, name, and challenge the norms, patterns, traditions, institutions, ideologies, structures, and the system. And our challenge is to reach across the aisle to our white allies and help them and encourage them to participate and to use their privilege and not only naming it, but disrupting racist systems. So can I, can I interrupt? I, I do this. I love this. You are <laughs> disrupting. So being an anti-racist means that you are disrupting, right? You're yes. disrupting yeah. racist systems. And so I want you to write that down. If you're here to learn, here to, to, to learn about what we're talking about, you know, be a part of the conversation, you have to disrupt the system. You have to be uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable topic even for me yes. to talk about. Can you imagine living in a world where people don't value you because of how you look, because of how you present? Dr. Childs, I don't know how many times I've walked into a store, a room, people look at me, they look at my hair, they take in maybe the t-shirt or the tennis mm -hmm. shoes that I have on and they make assumptions. Right. They make assumptions. And so if you don't speak up when you see these things, if you don't use your sphere of influence to really make a difference and to disrupt the narrative, then you are being a racist. And that goes into uh, white supremacy. And so we can talk yeah. about that too. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, but let's, let's, let's keep interrupting because that, that's really important. Yeah. Let's get into some terminology. Okay. Let's talk about the term racism. Uh, the conventional understanding of racism is a person that is overt. Racism is on an individual level, individual actors. That's how people generally understand racists. Like, but races are mean-spirited. They tell black jokes. They're mm -hmm. part of the Klan. Um, they are white supremacists in the, in the traditional sense. And so that's why most people say, well, I'm not a racist. I, I don't use the N-word on a regular basis. I have black friends. I'm married to a black person or I'm married to a Hispanic person. I have biracial children. I have biracial nieces and nephews. So people will cite these uh, scenarios to say that they're not a racist. But what we mean is when you participate in the, the white supremacist project, uh, when, you, when we talk about anti-racism, what we mean is the system, a racist system, the social historical system, it's not an individual moment. Like I go to school, I'm in the classroom. Like when we move to a, we move from the inner city to a predominantly white neighborhood, and they call me the N word on a regular basis. Okay, those were racist inst instances, but the system allowed it. 
Mm -hmm. Teachers allowed it. The principal allowed it. They weren't penalized. There wasn't a such thing as hate speech back then. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, my teachers allowed them to call me the N-word. That's a racist system. It's larger than the individual. So when we're talking about racism, we mean a system that's designed, not that there's an evil skeletor up there designing an evil system, but the way it has played out, it has disadvantaged people of color and advantage uh, 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 European, people of European descent, white folks. And that's what we mean by a racist system. Let me give you a practical example. In AP class, I remember when I was a substitute teacher at Colerain High School, um, I thought that the school was not racially diverse because I was subbing in AP math, AP social studies. I was in all the advanced classes and it was all white students. And then I got a few assignments in some of the remedial classes and there were all the black people. The system was somehow designed to uh, give white folks the advantage, the advantages, the best classes, and assume, and often they don't even test them, that the African-Americans, people of color, don't want to go to college, they want to be athletes, so that we're going to put them in all the lower level classes. And then some might say, well, white people are smarter and black people are not. Well, that's scientifically not correct. Um, to be honest, we are all a part of the human race, but we are, race is a social construct. And even though we know that biologically, we are the exact same often uh, as, our, as our white counterparts, the way it plays out in the world is a person like me is pulled over by the police. And many times I have my son and, and I, who's on this call, um, we've been pulled over. They asked him for his ID and he was only 14 years old because mm -hmm. they saw a black man in the car. They didn't even realize that's a child. Um, that's a system. And so we have to get outside of the individualistic thinking. I'm not a racist, but understand uh, when, when you are in a department that had never uh, tenured a black person or when you are in a university, when you're in a country where a black woman has never been a president, we've only had one black president, that's a system. It's yeah. still historical. And so that's what we're trying to ground this in and not have, um, and I, I get a sense we're preaching to the choir anyway, uh, but hopefully this will, uh, will make some folks mad as it, it, it brought, I don't want to make them mad on purpose, but we're going to disrupt. It makes them uncomfortable. Let's just uncomfortable. say we're uncomfortable. Right. And let me say this, and, and now you jump back anytime. Um, okay. A democracy is messy. Hmm. Democracy is messy. Um, I want everybody to check out um, my, my, uh, the articles I've been doing on NPR. I write it for the public. I write it for teachers. Democracy and me. Um, I write a, write a weekly column on democracy, history, a lot of things I'm talking about. And one of the things I believe, democracy is messy. The democratic process is messy. Mm -hmm. People at the table, well, sometimes we disagree, sometimes we don't understand each other. But we understand it's messy because we're trying to move forward with the Freedom Project. And so I think Americans are, are uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, Douglas said, nothing good comes without struggle. You can look at life and see that. Um, so we're struggling right now as Americans. Hopefully we can stay committed to the Freedom Project with our, our black and white brothers and sisters and black and brown brothers and sisters and move forward and not get discouraged by the process. Some things will have to get disrupted. People are gonna be uncomfortable. Folk gonna lose power. That's when people get uncomfortable. Uh, when people they start losing power, I think yeah. that's what it is about. Also about white supremacy. People don't want to give up power, and so yeah. the white rage they're uh, reacting violently. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I'm gonna simmer it down a little bit because <laughs> I saw it, it was coming up. I saw it. I see you lifting <laughs> up out of your chair. Um, so we have a question from someone on Facebook, and um, they asked about your thoughts on respectability politics. <laughs> my thoughts yeah okay so let's yes they wanted to know your thoughts so your thoughts but first let's set it up and let let's give you want to give a definition of respectability policy? yeah yeah um okay. another word that i like to use is civility okay um there, there's there's an article i wrote recently on civility um a part of middle class white culture is to be respectable at any cost. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I'm speaking for, uh, respectability is even if I disagree with you, and we don't do this in black culture, in, in authentic black, I don't wanna say authentic, but where I grew up, we don't do this. Okay. Um, we, we sort, cause I don't wanna speak as a monolith for black culture, but um, for the most part uh, in black circles, I know in the black church, black institutions, if you have something to say, 
Sometimes it may not be respectable. Sometimes it may not be cleaned up, uh, but I'm going to say it. Um, but uh, respectability politics has to do with uh, being polite, uh, politeness um, at any cost, and not really uh, working through uh, the issues. But a democracy, if, if, you, if you go to, if you watch Congress, if you watch the democratic process, even if you're on a board, uh, uh, sometimes you can sit on a contentious board where people are like a, 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 a tenure committee or, or a master's degree committee, people are, are trying to work it out. We might not always agree. Uh, that needs to come out more because we are at, at what ha what's happening is black folks are coming out of, uh, of their respectability mode and saying, you know what, this is how it is. And people are uncomfortable. Why is he talking like that? Oh my goodness. Why is he talking like that? Well, this is how we are. So I, you know, I, I've been, uh, I've been coming out of, uh, of my, my sort of shell because people need to know, we all need to know. Um, and, you know, maybe I can do a better job at, at being, the messenger can, can be better, but um, this civility has to stop. We have to push forward and have the real conversation and uncomfortable. I like to use this metaphor. Um, students, a couple of students, not, I'll be, I'm not going to name names, but a couple of my students at the university where I teach have come to me and said they have been sexually assaulted by the Greek community. Um, there's, when you have those conversations, there's no level of being nice about that. You, know, you call it out. You know, you call out uh, uh, the patriarchy. You call out perverted males that feel entitled to women's bodies. You call out the objectification of males. You call it out. Dr. Child. No, ain't nobody got time to be, uh, this is the preacher coming out. Nobody got time to be respectable. Yes. He wasn't respectable when he turned over the money tables. He was not respectable when he challenged the Jewish leaders. They were selling things in the house of God, capitalism in the house of God. He turned the table over. And I feel like that sometimes. It's time out. When, when you are pulled over by the police officer and you're afraid that your son is going to be choked out, when they're killing people and, and, and then the white society is still not getting it, the, the, the uh, George Floyd challenge, the youth that are on Facebook putting their necks on one another, their knees on one another's neck, is why be respectable? I think it's it's crippling, and I think it is uh, it's dishonest. Okay, I'm I'm simmering down. No, it's okay. It is because it's difficult. It's really difficult when you come out of that shell, you know, and 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 respectable respectability politics you know you move that to the side you know you know black they say black folks speak two languages right we speak we speak the yeah. language we speak at at, at work and then yeah. we speak what we speak at home you know with our family with our people with our friends and so you know i have been told that i'm an angry black woman i have been told you know that i have an attitude problem and and that might be because i'm quiet now, might I be angry? I might be, but you're classifying me without even getting to know me, right? Mm. You're classifying me without trying to see if I have an issue or if there is a problem. So, you know, um, since I have, since all of this has been going on, you know, the respectability politics that, that might have been in Tracy's, you know, world before, you know, I, I am all about being authentic and telling you the truth because really we are not going to learn Dr. Childs right. unless we start being uncomfortable, unless we start telling the truth, unless we start just saying, you know, calling a thing a thing. And if we right. don't do that, if we don't challenge, you know, leaders to speak up and speak out, you know, yeah, then well, I, and, and we have to, we have to speak truth to power. Yeah. Um, folks, um, a lot of people in power, a lot of the resistors are afraid of losing power. There, there's a, a, a comment I love, power never concedes power. I love yeah. that. Um, even in the church, and, and you guys, I, I, I always put it in a religious context because that's my world. Mm -hmm. uh, some, some, of, some of the white pastors that reach out to me, they have an agenda. Um, there, there are white pastors that I collaborate with that, that we're having some meaningful dialogues, meaningful conversations, but some will come to me 
with an agenda and want to tell us how to do things. They want to connect with the black church. Mm -hmm. makes them look good. It helps them with their slide presentations. Um, <laughs> but, but it, uh, uh, and so take it to 45. Um, a lot of the evangelicals have aligned politically with 45 and, and he gives them special concessions. And in some, in some instances, he gives them a, a, a seat in the white house. And so, in order for a lot of the, the religious leaders to, to speak against Donald Trump, it means that they're going to lose some power. And then broadly speaking, outside of the church, um, the power structure has resided in the white community. They have been able to, even, even in the seminaries that I attend, they get to define what theological studies is all about. And mm -hmm. when you talk about black studies, it's looked at as inferior. So they, they, the power is uh, owning the intellectual process um, yeah. to name things. Uh, and then when, when you say you're not the authority, uh, who says you get to name things, people get yeah. uncomfortable with that. When, when, you, when, when we're at the table and we get to help out with the process. And so I think a, a lot of what we're feeling, a lot of the resistance we're feeling is the resistance of acquiescing power and yeah. sharing yes. and, and, and acknowledging uh, because if I if I acknowledge your oppression, Tracy, that means I have to to uh, 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 share. to to uh, what you say? I said you got to share that power. Share, yeah. And, and and if I if I acknowledge that you have been disenfranchised and the process is not fair, uh, that that shines a light on me. Yeah. Even even as as a male, if 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 I try to hold on to my own power and not acknowledge as a patriarchal system. Uh, um, then, then we're not going to go as uh, far as we need to go. Uh, and and th I think that's, that's, that's the, the bottom line. So let me say this. Um, I've been catching a lot of flack um, from my white colleagues um, and then my students as well when I begin to name things, when I use mm -hmm. words like whiteness studies, mm -hmm. when I talk about white privilege, when I talk about white supremacy, mm -hmm. anti-racism, by me even naming those words and by even me bringing up African-American history in my classes and saying this is a part of American history, they, they not only get uncomfortable, they call me a racist and say, as long as you bring up race, you are a part of the problem. Hmm. That's racist thinking in and of itself to say that we own history, that, hmm. that history is European history. The real history, that, that's, that's a part of a structure. And anything else, uh, uh, Native American history, uh, Hispanic American, African American history is inferior. And we have to tear down these systems. Uh, and, but, but reaching across the aisle, I, I say this, I've been saying this to my white brothers and sisters. Um, it's about uh, uh, the white allies need to do three things. Listen, maybe more than three. Listen, don't be louder than the black voice all the time or at all. Don't tell the uh, black folks how to do it. And, and, and fourthly, um, I forgot the fourth one. <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew you were gonna forget it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 all stirred up. So don't be, don't be louder uh, uh, than the people of color. Uh, don't try to lead um, and, and then uh, <laughs> Don't speak for them. I, that's, I'll just go with those three. So let me, yes, go ahead. Let me hop in. So um, I, I do a lot of everything. So I'm in a, a coaching certification, right? And so um, the lead coach, the, the person over the program, um, hey, Kelly J. Um, so she talks <laughs> about yielding, right? She talks about yielding, you know, listening. And so sometimes when you are um, in a position that you want to learn more, you know, you can ask your questions but then you have to shut up and wait for the answer. Mm. And maybe I could have said that a little better. I'm sure my oh, mom is good. like, Tracy, but you, you do. You have mm. to shut up and you have to listen. And then don't keep asking questions after you ask one question, mm. then this is your time to go out and research and teach oh. someone else. And this is about using your, your sphere of influence to make a change, you know, ask yourself a question before you ask another question. You know, what can I do to make a change? What can I do 
um, so that I'm willing to, to see what someone is going through, to have empathy, to kind of feel that. And then how can I make a change, you know? And, and, yeah. and I think about that all the time. And um, we were talking about um, white evangelicals and, you know, mm -hmm. going across the aisle. You know, I live in Northern Kentucky. I attend a predominantly white church. And I must say, I was telling the pastor, I must say this is the first time that I have felt comfortable walking into a sanctuary um, and knowing that the pastor and the family, you know, at the church, mm -hmm. they will stand up and speak out for what's right. Not in, not in a respectable way. It is in a way that really makes it plain. You know, I know exactly where they stand. And I had to tell them that for the first, I've been living in Northern Kentucky for 10 years, almost 11 years. And this is the first time that I've ever heard, you know, any white person say, this is not tolerated. This is not what we believe. This is not what we're going to stand for. We stand, you know what I mean? And actually yeah. do something about it. And so, you know, it's not perfect, but right. I can say that this is what you have to do. If you have that influence, if you have that power, you're going to have to relinquish some of it in mm -hmm. order to help change the system, right? And it's messy. It's and messy. And it's not about black folks making everybody comfortable. Yeah. It has to do with the respectability piece too. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've been I've been angry some days and happy other days. You know, I just when I when I watch I tell you what, when I watch the George Floyd footage, I get angry. And I then, couldn't watch it. And then I, I went back and watched Eric Garner. Yeah. Twenty fourteen, the same thing. Um, and then when I go online to, to do ministry. And I hear folks saying, well, what about black on black crime? Yeah. And then I hear the rhetoric, the, the conspiracy theories out there that says uh, black people are, are trying to start a race war when that, that language is coming out of the alt-right mm -hmm. narratives out there as dog whistle tactics. Mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about black on black crime, you also have to talk about white on white crime, which is 70% of the, of the murders, uh, um, I read a statistic if I remember correctly, 70% of the murders of white people are by other white people. That's a racist notion, the racist ideology to say, just single out black on black crime as if they are more animalistic and violent than mm. any other, anybody else in this in, in, in society. From, from my perspective, from a biblical perspective, we all are flawed. We all are fallen. We, everybody's eating. Black people aren't bigger troublemakers and, and sinners than anybody else. You know, we all are flawed. But what's happening is, uh, African-Americans and people of color in general are, are demonized. Um, but I'm all about unity. I just don't want to do it anymore around the area of respectability. Mm. And I, and I say this and I, I'm all, we, we have, we, we've, we've lost some, some uh, good friends of ours at church because I begin to talk like this. Um, some white brothers and sisters, I have to reach back out to them. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I say this often, um, you can look all around the country and see people of color sitting at a congregation uh, with a white pastor. Uh, and I, I know a pastor that uh, all, most of her congregation is black and they support her. Um, but you have to look really, really hard to find an all white congregation with a black pastor. Um, because it, even in myself, people are uncomfortable um, as qualified as I am, people are uncomfortable coming and sitting on, on, under the black pastor because of the idea of, of white supremacy. It's just there. So we have work to do. Mm -hmm. I, I believe in reaching across the aisle. I just want to do it in a way where black people are not making all the concessions. Um, I tell my students that um, the, the work of anti-racism is not on the back of black people only. A lot of times when we talk about multiculturalism, all the words we use, diversity, inclusion, People assume, America assumes that it's the Mexican burden, it's the black burden, it's the black yeah. and brown burden, but it's our burden. If we truly are colorblind, which I don't believe in that notion, but if you want to be committed to that false ideology, then you need to treat me the exact same as you yeah. treat uh, your, your white brothers and sisters. And you don't. When, when, when a black person is killed on the streets, we think that's their problem. Mm -hmm. That's not very colorblind to me. Um, and so the, the problem of race and racism it's not, should not be always put on the burden 
of black and brown folks. Uh, they call it the black tax. You guys heard that terminology, the black taxes. The African-American in any organization has always to go above and beyond. Anytime there's a diversity committee to sit on, anytime there's a conversation about hiring somebody, we need a representative yes. against a black person. It's called that the black tax. Now, uh, if we want to move forward, it's gonna take people like those in, in, this, uh, in this space right now uh, to bring about change and use your privilege uh, to, to bring awareness and be uncomfortable. Because yeah. guess what, we're very uncomfortable. One of the things I said, and I'll, I'll end with this piece, um, that um, my students often say, well, I'm afraid to approach the conversation of race because I don't, I don't know what to use, whether to use African-American, I don't know, I might offend somebody. Um, and I, they say this in my class, and I'm generally the only black person in the class. I said, you guys talk about fear. How do you think it feels to, to be a black man standing in front of all white students and talk about race? They get really quiet. Because yeah. they privilege themselves. <laughs> yeah. Talk about their fear of being uncomfortable. <laughs> and I have to teach an entire class in front of them. Yeah. Judge. And then back when I was going through tenure, that was even more scary because now they're determining whether I can feed my family or not. That's scary. Yeah. Quiet. Because what I do is take, take, the, take them out of their privilege and, and give them a different perspective. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Childs, this was an awesome conversation. You know, our hour, our hour is uh, wrapped up and I want to be mindful of that um, because I, I think we have room for another conversation and, and maybe yes. a series of conversations. And so um, I want to thank everybody for thank coming and just sharing the space with us, just the conversation. And these are really conversations that he and I have when we get together or right. talking, you know, yes. and, and I learned so much from you. And so I so appreciate yeah, your friendship and, and just yes. your mentoring and just kind of, you know, learning and learning from each other from our different perspectives. And so, uh, Dr. Childs, if someone wants to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, I'm going to put my uh, email down here as I talk. Okay. Uh, I just want to say um, my philosophy is we are on this earth for just a short time. Um, my dad was uh, a part of that great cloud of witnesses uh, he was a, a black pastor. He's from the South, hmm. heaven now. And uh, he did so much work. And uh, now it's my turn uh, to, to shine my light, hmm. uh, to be purposeful, to be purpose-driven. Um, I'm here just for a season. And my, my chief priority is to, to do what God told me to do um, and not be selfish, not try to make as much money as I can and all those kinds of things. Money is important, but my goal is to, to help somebody else make the world a better place. Hopefully my life can, can be a seed um, to make the world a better place. One of my heroes is Colin Kaepernick uh, mm -hmm. and the work that he's done. Uh, really, uh, I'm not a starstruck person. I really don't care about celebrities that much in terms of meeting them, but uh, Colin Kaepernick, the work that he's done, the sacrifice that he made, to me, that's pretty cool. I want, I want, I want to do something like that and spend the rest of my life uh, just being a witness and being a blessing to somebody else and uh, being a light. Um, mm -hmm. and my privilege to, to help somebody else, use the privilege that I have and the resources that I have to help lift somebody else up. God bless y'all. I appreciate y'all. I'm posting it right now. Okay. So you can, you know, I will also, for those of you who registered for the webinar, um, I will get that information to you. And so if you're interested in maybe bringing Dr. Childs to your campus or to your organization or have a conversation, you can email um, me at Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y at TracyNicole.org. And I will definitely, you know, get you in contact with him so that you can bring him to your organization to really have these dialogues. Um, when I do my work with the authors that I work with and the clients that I coach, I often tell them that their story has the power to break down barriers and inspire others to hope. So just think about who you are, what your story is, what is your legacy? And if your legacy is not something that you are proud of, how can you use the time that you have on earth 
to create a new one and creating a new legacy that's going to help other people. I too believe that my purpose is to go and teach. And that's yeah. from Matthew 19, you know, yeah. and, and, and my job is to be a light. And so every day with whatever I'm doing, no matter where I am, I am authentic in that I try to be a light and I try to teach and I try to help, you know, we, we are, we're better together, you know, yes. um, I need you to survive and you need me. And so if we remember that instead of all the separation, all the hate, you know, all the privilege, you know, if you remember these things and remember your story and remember to tell it, I think that will give you some space to remember that someone else has a story too. That Hello, thank you so much for tuning in to More Than a Single Story Unscripted today. We hope you found some valuable content as you were listening. We would love for you to connect with us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash I am Tracy Nicole. We're also on Instagram and Twitter as Trey Speaks. You can also visit our website at www.tracynicole.org, fill out the form, and one of our team members will get back with you within 48 hours. Again, thank you so much for joining us. You could have been listening to someone else, but you chose to hang out with us. And for that, we thank you. Have a great rest of your day, your evening, your morning, and we will see you next week on Trey Speaks Tuesday. Have a great journey. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.